So I'd like to uh, begin just by extending my greetings and welcome to those of you who arrived uh, a day or two ago, some of whom I haven't met before, and uh, I hope you're settling well. This uh, morning what I'd like to speak about is uh, a theme of practicing with a tender heart. It can sometimes be when we uh, find ourselves in this world, as we do, that there's a, a sense of not quite being 100% sure whether this is what we want, whether this is what we really actually are up for. There's a, a rather, for me at least, an enjoyable cartoon, a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. I don't know if any of you know the cartoons, but uh, full of uh, profound wisdom, I would suggest. Uh, if you've ever encountered them, you may or may not agree. But it involves a, a six-year-old boy and his imaginary tiger. And one of the uh, cartoons that came to mind when I was reflecting this morning about what I should, might speak of was this one in which uh, Calvin is sitting in front of the television, as a six-year-old boy, and um, his mum is encouraging him to go out and engage with you know, the world, go out and do something useful or interesting, and uh, he refuses and refuses, and she kind of questions him as to why he doesn't want to, and he hasn't got any good reason. So eventually she basically throws him out, and the last caption of the cartoon He's kind of being flung out the front door together with his tiger, Hobbs. And he's calling out. As he realises the problem, he says, having been taken away from the television, he says, it's too real. <laughs> and that kind of sense of, just a moment, are we up for the real version of life? Is, I think, is a, a useful question to reflect upon, the real version isn't quite as tame or as safe or predictable or subject to the remote control as a television. And uh, hence, perhaps, some of the attractions of the tube, as in the television, not the uh, public transport system. Somewhat less attractive, probably. So, what is it to really see this life as something that's real? That's kind of, in a certain way, in your face? Isn't it? It's kind of like it's right here. It's not kind of at a safe distance. It can sometimes be intense, challenging, sometimes painful, harsh, sometimes unsettling, scary, confusing. Of course, sometimes delightful, sweet, beautiful, joyful, wonderful. But to notice in this realness of life, something that it's, I think, important to be very conscious of is that as human beings, we are very sensitive. We have this capacity to feel. We have these sense, sensory capacities that are remarkable in their ability to, you know, give us a signal from the world of what's going on, visual, sound, smell, taste, touch, mental constructs, images, concepts, all of this. But in that sensitivity, in the sensitivity that's part of what we are, it can often feel that it's not possible or not at all easy to find a sense of comfort, to find a sense of peace, to find a sense of ease, which we may so deeply yearn for. And one of the primary ways we respond to that is wishing to withdraw from it, somehow wishing to pull back, pull away, disconnect, distance or dull ourselves in relationship to life. And it's useful just to consider whether in any way we might use meditation or being on retreat as an escape, as a way of avoiding, as a way of getting a safe distance from life because it's just too real. 
is just too full on. It's too alive, basically. Of course, it would be unusual for any of us to not on occasion find that appearing as one of the things that pulls us. What's important is to notice if that's going on, to be conscious about it. And so far as possible, of course, we're not here to escape our life. That it can sometimes be that you know wanting to get calm, you know, concentrate, ah, samadhi, yes, please. It's like because then it's I'm not going to be impacted or impinged upon by all this life, all this stuff going on. And that we imagine that that might be peace. Of course, concentration, samadhi is really useful, really powerful. But looking at why we're seeking it as a support for deepening in wisdom and compassion, precious, unparalleled quality of heart, samadhi, concentration, focus. But as a means of escape, ultimately un- unsuccessful, unsustainable, and uh, in a way a shame to, to spend our time doing that. So true practice is not escape. It's not escaping from our life. It's not avoiding life. It's not about somehow getting out of here. Because there is nowhere else to go. This is the bottom line. But learning to open to our life, learning what it means to be in the midst of the realness, the aliveness, the full-onness of this, in a way in which is at ease, at peace, in a way which is open, And what this requires of us, I think, is to allow our hearts to be tenderized by life, to allow our hearts' tenderness to be felt and known. Because when we experience pain or hurt or difficulties, struggles in life, and we're not really conscious about it or aware and in touch of it, what we do, it seems instinctively, unconsciously, and at perhaps some, in some circumstances necessarily. But what we do is we tend to tighten, we tend to harden, we tend to contract, close down, sort of rigidify in an attempt to armour ourselves against experience, an attempt to somehow defend or protect ourselves from feeling the full-onness, the intensity of aliveness that we encounter with its joys and its sorrows, inevitably. And becoming numb or distant or disconnected somehow seems safer than life in my face. And there can be times where it's actually necessary, and particularly speaking to when we're very young, small, and not with yet having access to our full adult capacity and maturity to encounter the the range of experience life can bring to us, sometimes then we have no other option and maybe it is actually the necessary and appropriate course that some closing down happens. But as adults, we don't necessarily want to perpetuate this condition because we are no longer limited in that way. We no longer have... The, um, the limitation of being an infant or a child. And we can see that although we might be attracted to this distant, disconnected, but apparently safe condition or protected condition, there's also something really difficult about this condition in itself. There's something that can easily evoke in us, I think, anger, about feeling disconnected or frustration or grief or sadness and, and just noticing how we feel somewhat distant from our hearts or our hearts feel somewhat distant from our life. We can phrase it in different ways. But just that sense of some distance. And there's a recognition of a great loss as we become more aware, as we become conscious. It's a great loss to lose that sensitivity because in that sensitivity is the the vibration of connection, of interrelatedness, of being touched by life, of being able to touch life. That's what that sensitivity 
offers us. And when we lose it, when we harden, when we numb, we lose that connection, which is so deeply precious and, I would say, crucial to our sense of well-being, of happiness, of, of our, our basic healthiness, actually. And so there can be this way in which we start to recognise the wish, the need, the call to make contact with what we could say our, our tender heart, the heart that isn't so defended, the t- heart that's more open, more vulnerable, more sensitive. And this call is something that life brings to us. It's inevitable. As it, just as it may sometimes be inevitable that we close down because of circumstances that were or seemed to be overwhelming for us. And as I said, as a child, they may literally have been overwhelming. Later in life, it may be more simply that it seems that they're overwhelming because of our experience of being overwhelmed when it was actually so in previous years of our life. But there's this is this call that life brings to us to open. And I remember having a really, what for me was really a powerful lesson with regard to this. Um, some years ago when I was teaching a retreat in America at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, and I was walking through the woods, it was, um, I think in summer, but actually I'm not sure what time of year it was, it might have been spring. I was walking through the woods in this little path down to the pond, and there on the path in front of me, about uh, three or four yards, three or four metres ahead, suddenly I saw a large snake, and I just stopped, dead still. I come from New Zealand, we have no snakes in New Zealand. Snakes I have no experience with, and I just froze. And I looked at the snake, and it was like, snake, ah, don't go there. And then I kept looking. I was really also interested because like, snake, wow, snake, live, wild creature. And so there was a sort of pull towards and pull away from it with interest and with some degree of uh, fear. Then I noticed the snake wasn't moving, so I went a little closer. One step, two steps, still didn't move. And I got a little closer and I realised it wasn't a snake. It was the skin of a snake. Now, as I realised that, it was a bit of a surprise and my mind went to all the stories of the Buddha's teachings where he talks about the dangers of getting snakes confused with ropes and ropes confused with snakes and the danger being that if you try and pick up a snake thinking it's a rope, it's going to bite you. So you want to make sure you notice the difference. Whereas if you spend a lot of time avoiding walking too close to a piece of rope, it's a bit silly and it might uh, make your journey more complicated. So, you know, I recognise here that, well, I hadn't quite got this completely wrong which was a relief because I'd been really quite mindful and paying attention I thought but on the other hand it wasn't actually a snake and then I started to think well wow that snake had to climb out of its skin in order for the skin to be sitting here on the path and I say wow what would that be like to have to climb out of your skin why would you want to do that I mean this is just you know flicking through my mind in that moment or moments. And I thought, well, of course, skins have to shed, sorry, snakes have to shed their skin every year. That's how they grow. They've got this safe, well, safe, this quite strong, hard, protective, scaly layer on the outside that protects them. But that because it's hard and strong and scaly, it's also not flexible. It doesn't grow with them. And so they have to get out of that skin in order to grow. They have to come outside of that protective layering in order to grow. And when they do that, well, I guess they, they can't come out with another skin armouring already established because it's not going to be any bigger than the last one. They won't be able to grow inside it. They have to come out of that skin kind of soft, maybe kind of pink, maybe juicy, I don't know. That's the only way out here. And it's not a moment when you want you know, one of the local hawks to come past when you're just coming out of your skin and you're all soft and juicy. And I kind of felt like this, wow, that snake has no choice but to climb out of its skin. If it doesn't, it dies, because it can't grow. And then me, 
You? Us? Yeah, actually, it's not that different. So far as we hold ourselves within some kind of hard, armoured, protective layer or skin, we're bound within it. We can't grow. There's no room inside it. And yet, in order to grow, we have to shed it and take the risk of being open, of being vulnerable, of being tender and juicy and exposed. Exposed to the whatever life might present us. So there's a certain necessity to enter that territory of vulnerability. It's a necessity. It's crucial for us to be able to do that when, it's ne- when, when we need to, not as if we always need to be there. And therefore it's important that we have a place that's safe in order to do it. It's one of the important reasons for being in a retreat such as this, both in terms of the location but also in terms of the environment we create because it's safe. So we can allow ourselves, we can take the risk to come out of our skin, out of our armouring, out of our defendedness, out of our distantness. And how does this happen? Well, it's not like we have to do it. In fact, it's not as if we really can do it. We can't make ourselves become vulnerable. It's, uh, it's really the natural and organic effect or result of being in contact with our experience. The process of coming consciously into the felt sense of what's going on, whatever it is, and how it's impacting, how it's affecting you in your practice, in your experience, through the day. Just feeling it. Sometimes it's sweet and lovely. Sometimes it's bitter or harsh or scary. Sometimes it's just kind of ordinary and, hmm, so what, we might think. But just letting yourself know, letting yourself feel, letting yourself really be there when you are in contact with your experience, whatever it is, whether it's just a simple movement of breath deep into the belly, whether it's the arising of some strong or difficult emotion, whether it's a sense of calm that just seems to have no end, or agitation that also seems to have no end, whatever it is, really being there, in that. It's like that process of bringing consciousness into contact with the experience, which is the absence of the willing to do that is what leads to the hardening. The absence of the willingness to be there is what leads to the hardening. The presence of the willingness to be there, it doesn't mean we always manage to be there, but the willingness to be there is what actually brings the moisture, brings life back in. And it's there's a natural organic softening of the heart, we could say, of the being. We can sometimes notice our very physical structures starting to become more fluid, become more soft, become less rigid or tight or ossified. There's more space, there's room to breathe, and it's more alive. And it's just like bringing moisture to hard, dry, condensed earth. Very little grows in earth that is hard and dry and packed. When you bring moisture to it, it starts to soften. There's space, there's movement, there's possibility to draw the nourishment out of that element because earth is full of nourishment, just as life is full of nourishment. But without the attention, sorry, without the moisture of our attentiveness, our willingness... We don't get the moisture from it. Sorry, we don't get the nourishment from it. And that tends to reinforce the idea, oh, best go somewhere else, look for it somewhere else. So really allowing yourself to feel, to be with, to be intimate with your experience is to begin to know directly what it is to open because it happens it's not something you have to do as one of my uh, one of my uh, favourite and beloved teachers Ajahn Sachito abbot of uh, one of the monasteries here in England he would say kind of more referring to how difficult things eventually change but equally I would say it refers to how uh, quite lovely things begin to blossom within us he he says uh, paraphrasing a rather well-known uh, summary of the first noble truth, he says, well, not paraphrasing, uh, embroidering on, we could say. He says, shift happens. 
I always wonder whether I really need to specify what that's very close to, but I guess you probably understand, unless you're maybe not from this culture. Um, but anyway, shift happens. It just happens. But it happens supported by our intentionality, supported by our practice, supported by our way of engagement with the experience. And so it's like this bringing of a qualitative contact to the moment-to-moment unfoldment of your life. That is one of the dimensions. It's not the only dimension, but it's the dimension of practice that I'm really wanting to touch upon. There's a poem that I'd like to share that speaks to this, this quality. It's by uh, Galway Canal. It's called St. Francis and the Sow. He writes... The bud stands for all things, even for those things that do not flower. For everything flowers from within, of self-blessing, though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower, and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely, until it flowers again from within, of self-blessing. <coughs> Just as St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length, from the earthen snout all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine, down through the great broken heart, to the sheer blue milk and dreaminess, spurting and shuddering from the fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths, sucking and blowing beneath them. The long, perfect loveliness of Sal. So there's a way in which really contacting our experiences is there's an act of we could say bringing blessing to our life, not blessing drawn from some otherworldly or um, sort of sort of somehow removed source that you know we might find in terms of you know getting blessings from great spiritual beings or from sort of uh, that sort of thing but more just the natural blessing of that willingness to contact to meet there's something profoundly transformative about it and that within that blessing that willingness to actually just touch and be touched by our life there's a rediscovery of an innate loveliness we could say to reteach a thing its loveliness put the hand on the brow it's like being willing to be there for your experience is to bless this moment with your presence that your presence is the blessing your willingness the conscious alive openness that you bring to it is the blessing it's not something else or from someone or somewhere else it's right there in that and it's transformative Miraculously so, just as blessings are supposed to be. And the wholeheartedness and the fullness of that presence is what makes the difference. And which, which is why we associate that capacity with those people who've done a lot of spiritual work, who've developed that quality, that capacity of presence, of openness, and have the ability to extend a sense of blessing that we can may, maybe feel or recognize. But it's not something outside of or apart from ourselves. And yet, although this is very true, it's not always what we recognize. It's not always what we can see or how we habitually relate to our own experience or what we call me or ourself. In fact, what we can often recognize is that our way of relating to ourself is almost the opposite rather than a sense of appreciation for ourselves and for our experience, for our lives, what we can really see is that we tend to focus on everything that supports 
not that, not seeing that, that we tend to be easily drawn into blaming, judging ourselves. We, we find it hard to be open to our own life because we can see, we can remember, it seems seared upon our memory, seared into our hearts, uh, the recollections and the, the feelings associated with the mistakes we've made in our life, the harm that perhaps we've caused or been involved with, the suffering and the pain, the failures, all the things in our life that might seem to support the idea that no, there's no loveliness here, just stupidity, greed, hatred, anger, confusion, frustration. I don't imagine that in coming here on the retreat that's all that you would relate to yourselves as. I certainly trust and hope that wouldn't be the case. But probably most of us will recognize that some of the time that's where we're coming from. Maybe others of us might recognize that it's also sometimes a pattern or a habit. And to really be able to look at that clearly, to see, to bring ourselves into contact with that truth that yes, sometimes we've made mistakes, sometimes we have caused harm, we have acted out of selfishness and out of anger without thought for the effect upon another. I've certainly done it. Pretty confident that all of you at times have done that also. Maybe not intentionally, but maybe sometimes also intentionally, knowing exactly what you or me knowing exactly what I was doing when I did it. We've all done that. And to let ourselves contact that truth is a profound tenderizer of the heart. If we don't sort of blame ourselves, say I'm bad or it was the world that made me do it or it was all because of, you know, my parents, they were nasty, you know, we don't blame or the world, the world's pretty bad. Look at all that war, poverty, exploitation. If we just, without getting into a place of blaming, we just take on the fact of what's it like to acknowledge that? Yeah, I've messed up sometimes. I, I didn't always get it right. It's like, ah, oh, there's a softening. There's a, like you don't, we don't have to defend ourselves against the fact that this is true. We can't actually defend ourselves against it. It's not necessary to defend yourself against it. But to let yourself feel it. To see that there's a again there's a tenderness in that reality. Oh look, you know I did silly things and I hurt myself. I did foolish things and I hurt other people. It happens. And to look within that truth and see how did that come to be, because it's not a random accident. Again, having looked at myself and I imagine if you, and I'm sure you you have yourselves reflected on your own lives, your own experience, what. I think you'll see is that for the most part that in some way or form when we've acted with so out of selfishness or we've acted from a place of anger what we've been trying to do is somehow take care of ourselves or those we care for or those things we care about. It's like I'm trying to take care of me by taking everything and not being concerned about someone else and whether they get anything. Selfishness is an attempt to take care of me. Sometimes I'm angry and maybe I've pushed someone away or I've disregarded their need because I feel like they're harming me and I don't want to give them what they want or they're threatening my ability to care for myself or, of course, the sense of my extends beyond me to my family, my community, my country, my species, my whatever, my planet. You know, And it's not to say there isn't something... Or, in fact, it's precisely to say there's something entirely valid about wishing to care for the well-being of and to protect the welfare of that which we care about and ultimately, hopefully, extending that to all of life. But that if we see that it's not actually that effective to try and look after ourselves by ignoring the well-being of others or look after one subset of life by ignoring the rest of it, we see that doesn't work. That's actually what causes the problem. That's actually what we're usually trying to stop other people from doing by ourselves doing it. And it doesn't work. So, in this, I mean, there's a whole kind of direction that could go in terms of looking at how to work with that. But for now, what I kind of want to just stop with or to... to focus with is the just the acknowledging of yeah it happens 
it happens mostly out of misguided intentions for welfare out of foolish lack of understanding and to to be able to forgive yourself for that this is again one of the invitations of the tender heart and one of the processes that tenderizes the heart is to be able to say yes I've hurt people and yes people have hurt me but starting with myself can I just forgive myself for that can I see that I've made mistakes because I was blind because I didn't realize I was trying to protect me or mine I didn't know I didn't understand the link in Buddhist teaching is very clear ignorance or blindness is a more useful translation it's less pejorative in our in our culture ignorance or blindness avidya not seeing leads to suffering that's what happens we don't understand therefore we act in ways that cause suffering we don't understand our interconnectedness we act in disregard of our interconnectedness which means therefore selfishness or anger those different many different forms of that it causes suffering for others it causes suffering for ourselves when we recognize that's what's happened and to be able to let ourselves feel that again to be tender with that it's like ah oh, ouch that's not really what i wished for and yet if it's true let me look at that let me see because this is how life is it goes like this for everybody there's a great story of a um of a Zen student who came to the master he had one opportunity for this audience with this great master and he had one uh, one question he was allowed to ask and that was his 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 opportunity and so he he came um and and he said what's the most important thing to cultivate in life and the master looked at him and said hmm good judgment and although he only had one question he couldn't help himself so he said what what brings good judgment the master said hmm experience how do you get experience hmm bad judgment <laughs> there's no way around that if all the answers could be written down in a form that we could absorb them without having to learn the lessons ourselves we do it at the beginning of the retreat and all go home it doesn't work that way we have to see the way we enact our misunderstandings of life in order to be able to transform them and that's sometimes painful that's sometimes difficult but it is no basis for judging yourself as somehow wrong or bad or unworthy of your own tenderness and care how else can we learn and grow apart from messing up and starting again and isn't what's most beautiful and what's most noble not that somehow we're able to be perfect because we aren't but that we can see that imperfection and continue to work continue to explore be willing to grow through it and beyond it rather than somehow trying to get around it there is no such thing as a spiritual bypass although the there are many attempts to bypass our humanity in the spiritual world they don't actually work so seeing with some compassion the reality that yeah this is how it is can we turn towards ourselves with a sense of friendliness and care with tenderness to bring that quality of tenderness not just to our experience but to our our felt sense of our own being whatever that is for you however you experience that you know the buddha said and it's often quoted he said you could look the whole world over and you would not find another being more worthy of your love than yourself can you really let that in It's not saying you're more worthy than everybody else. You don't have to get worried about grandiosity here that you're somehow saying I'm the most worthy. No, no. It's saying there isn't anyone else that's more worthy, equal worthiness. But can you really let yourself take that in that you are equally worthy of your own love as anybody else? There is no one more worthy than yourself. 
What would be the effect of taking that in? Really taking that in? How would that affect the way you practiced, the way you lived? And maybe it's not so far away from from you, that possibility. Though many of us wouldn't hear that. We just can't quite go there. So we're so strongly conditioned to be concerned about other people. We're so, rather than ourselves, or we're so strongly conditioned to point to all the reasons why we don't quite deserve that. Because that's perhaps the messages we got from people around us when we were young. Or when we were old. Or older, as we are now. And there are certain circumstances where it's just natural for us to feel this. When we encounter a small baby, a tiny infant, helpless, vulnerable, sensitive, totally unthreatening. There's a natural sense of appreciation, of love, of just caring. And the tender heart is just something that for many of people, I think we just feel it naturally in the presence of a small being like that, which is unarmored, undefended. And we just feel that sense of, ah. Oh. And of course, weren't we all one of those little babies? Not that we are right now, but that some quality of that is still there. Though perhaps a little buried, or maybe not. But when we meet a little baby, how can we not open to that? It just calls forth from us the sense of, ah, oh, look. Likewise, if we encounter someone on their deathbed, someone who knows they have but days or hours or even minutes to live, if we encounter someone in that place, whether young or old, whether tragically being taken in the prime of their life or having lived a full, rich and you know, worthy life, happy life, and yet nonetheless coming to its end, how do we encounter such a person? You know... Isn't it just natural? Isn't it just organic that we feel a sense of caring and appreciation for such a being when we meet someone, if we have, or even if you haven't, to just imagine what that's like if you know that that's where they are? We just naturally, it's like, oh, we care for them. We're not concerned with how much they messed up in their life. We just see the being, and whoa, precious, tender, and so vulnerable facing that unknown, unknowable doorway through which we must all ourselves one day pass. And many of which, many of us will be in that place where we actually realise. Not always. I would say it's actually a blessing to realise. Though we might wish it to come upon us unexpected. I would say it's a blessing to know that it's coming very soon. But whether or not we know that we will be in that place one day. And how would we re- want to or imagine we would relate to ourselves then? Could we not bring that same care and tenderness? Could we not see this being? You know, the Buddha said, when relating to some of his, um, his monks and nuns who had been quarrelling and fighting, he said, knowing you will die, how can you quarrel? Like if you remember these beings are going to die, how can you get so angry with them and want to show them who's right? Can we relate to ourselves in that spirit, seeing that we ourselves are here only temporarily? We will die. Can we not bring an immense tenderness to this reality? Because we are, in this moment, as in every moment, suspended between that soft, tender, vulnerable birth and that inevitable vulnerability of death. We are suspended between those places all our life. If we really let that in, then it's like, oh, oh, of course. It just makes sense to bring a caring tenderness to our life. Derek Walcott speaks of how this can come to be for us in the poem Love After Love. He writes, The time will come when with elation You will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome, 
and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, who you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. To really receive your own being, your own life. To receive this, this remarkable thing that's happening right here, here and now, sitting on a cushion or a chair or a bench. This, whatever we conceive it to be or define it to be or fail to seek, manage to de- define or conceive it as. It doesn't really matter. It's, there's something alive here. Something precious, something tender, something beautiful. To really allow yourself to be attuned to that in your practice. Because to see our life truly and directly is to recognize that it includes suffering and difficulty. Plenty of it at times, it seems. You know, the Buddha spoke of the reality of our body as being subject to birth, aging, sickness, death. He spoke of the reality of having a sensitive heart, a a capacity to feel and respond to life. He spoke about that as being subject to sorrow, pain, grief, lamentation and despair. He talked about having a mind that's going to be subject to association with the disliked, to separation from the liked, to not getting what it wants. These features are part of all of our lives. They're not your fault. It's not your fault that it happened this way. It's in the nature of experience that this is part of it. And Dharma teachings ask us to see that clearly, to address the ways in which we might add to the suffering by failing to recognize it, by struggling against it, by not understanding that when we act from a place of disconnection, we amplify the suffering. When we react to life, we amplify suffering. All of that seeing how it happens, but it's not your fault. And yet we are asked to take responsibility for how do we meet it from here? What do we do from this moment? The world, others and ourselves experience suffering. (coughs) The first noble truth of the Buddha. It's really just open to it. At first it can be like, oh, I don't want to go there. I'm I'm more interested in the end of suffering. That sounds better to me. And Sure. And yet, these things are together. Seeing into the truth of suffering is inextricably linked from discovering the end of and the release from suffering that Dharma teachings point to. And there's a sweetness and a painfulness together when we just let ourselves feel or get, really get in our being, oh yeah, this is how it is. It's almost like there's a poignancy, I love that word, poignancy. It's like something that's sweet and yet painful at the same time. It's almost like the piercing of the heart, is the sense I get from it, reflecting on that word this morning. It was like piercing the heart, piercing its defendedness. And in that being pierced, it's not wounded or damaged, it's opened, it's... it's its juicy, tender aliveness is revealed and felt. And it, it's, whew, whew, it's not easy. But life gets in, in that condition. Life gets in. We're no longer distant from it. And it's like uh, we have to really feel the truth of suffering in order to know the truth of our hearts. Immense tenderness and immense capacity for care for loving-kindness, for tenderness. So, another poem by Naomi Shihab Nye. She says, kindness it's entitled, Before you must know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, 
All this must go so you can know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath which kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows, and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. It is only kindness that ties your shoes, that sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. Like to see the truth of suffering, and not just as a concept. Concept doesn't do the work on us. It's like to let ourselves be exposed to it with a tender, open heart is to really understand, to know that only kindness makes sense in this life, in the face of the way things are. To be exposed to to really feel and sense the first noble truth is to really discover to really discover the immense capacity of our heart for kindness because nothing else makes sense when we're in that place it is natural it's the organic response and so we we learn to practice we learn to engage in the spirit we learn to bring ourselves to what we do here on retreat in the spirit and that can take the form of the you know the, the, the loving kindness the metta meditation practice where we're actively orienting our mind and our heart and our being towards the sense of well wishing may I be happy may you be happy may all beings be happy be free be safe be awakened really bringing that sense of caring as some of you are doing in, in your practice cultivating that from a place of tenderness and care we can also when we're practicing inside or vipassana or equally when the, in the practice of samatha of concentration developing deep calm establishing the intention for practice on that place of caring establishing the intention for our firm commitment and resolve that might at times seem quite fierce or fiery or appear like more like hard than soft and it can have a certain you know strength to it but this is not in contradiction with that quality of caring and tenderness so that place of firm resolve and wholehearted dedication to practice to exploring experience or to just the simple bareness of one moment or one breath can come from a place of love and learning to meet each moment with interest, with openness, with acceptance. This is kindness in action. True practice is kindness in action. And to, to, to think, you know, what, what is it to be received ourselves with kindness? It's like we're met as we are, and yet with interest. We're not demanded to be different. That doesn't feel kind. And we're not dismissed. Or, you know, someone says, oh, you can be as you are, I don't care. That's not kindness. It's like, oh, this is how you are, and I'm interested. That's kindness. It's not like we have to be kind of gushing out with some warm, sort of fluffy pink stuff. Sometimes that's what comes out, but it's not required. It's more that sense of openness, of interest, of just, ah, look, this is life. This is alive. And yet as we begin to feel that possibility, and some of you speaking of it and uh, exploring it, what we can also notice is that there's something that kind of starts to come and says, as it 
shows itself as possible, there's also some fear perhaps arising or the feeling of the risk of, just a moment, I'm not sure I want to get that tender or that soft or that open. It's like, I don't want to lose these hard, defining boundaries, the sense of sort of solidity that I associate with that. I'm not sure I want to be vulnerable. I'm not sure I want to go into that place because there's the fear that we'll somehow soften and dissolve into some undifferentiated mush, you know, and we'll be sort of sitting like a, a puddle on the floor, not really able to engage with our life or deal with challenges. And yet it's not really like that. If you explore it, if you come to see, and I'm sure as at times you all have, one sees that that tenderness of heart is actually, while not rigid or hard, it's profoundly substantial. It has a depth and a sensitivity and a liveness to it that is uncompromising and unshakable when we really inhabit it fully. And that this, this quality is... Um, it's without boundary. It's boundless. And this is what we can come to understand and discover through our practice through abiding in the tender heart with wisdom, with care. This natural quality of tender openness, boundlessness, that is a natural quality of the awakened heart and mind. So let's take a few minutes quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.